Thank you, Jesus. We owe you everything. Lord, you are good. And uh, we pray that the ministry of your Holy Spirit would be active among us today. Lord, that our hearts would be soft soil, that the seed of God's word could take root and bear fruit in. And uh, we just praise you and worship you for being our great God and King and Savior. So speak to us through your word. We pray in Christ's name. And as you can see, um, we're going to be spending a special time around the Lord's table a little bit later on this morning, so you can be preparing your hearts uh, for that experience, okay? We're talking about the mission today, the mission that's shaped by the gospel. And, and let's read these scriptures aloud together and just remind each other of what we've been called to be and to do in the world. Um, I'll read the references and then we can read the uh, actual content together, okay? So, we start with Matthew 4.19. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And John 17.14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And then John twenty twenty one, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And then the Great Commission passage, Matthew twenty eight nineteen. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Acts 1.8 But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then 2 Corinthians 5.20 Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And may God bless the reading of his word this morning. Well, I want to begin with a question, a very challenging question for you, and it's, it challenges me for sure, and it's this. How would your life look different if you got up every morning and said, you know what, I'm a child of the Most High God, and I've been sent by my Savior King into the world to be an ambassador for Him. How would your day look differently if you got up thinking that way in the morning? What would it be like to wake up every day and say to Jesus, Okay, Lord, another day. Thank you for another day to be a witness for you in my office, on my campus, at the plant I work at, in my neighborhood. What would it look like for you to wake up every day and see yourself as a missionary to your city? You ever think of yourself like that? You know, the past three weekends, we've been exploring together in this series what it means to be a church that is centered in the gospel of Jesus Christ or driven by the gospel. And I'm going to recall that little diagram that we've been looking at and working off of the last few weeks. And we saw that a gospel-driven church starts with a commitment from all of us to keep Jesus and his gospel message front and center, right? Right? takes a commitment from all of us for that. 
to be central in our teaching, in our decisions, our ministries, our programming, our future direction. The gospel is the primary driving force behind everything that we say and everything that we do. And we know that because of who Jesus is and what he's done, he's the only one who really deserves that center stage, the spotlight in this church. Gospel at the center. And then we saw that that gospel message has the power to shape our identity, right? It's a beautiful thing. And those of us who believe the gospel have experienced, we noted, a fundamental change at the core of our very being and who we are. I get chill bumps whenever people tell me, like several did last week, that they are getting who they are in Jesus Christ. They're understanding their position in Christ. That's huge. It's a big, big thing. We saw that God's assessment of us trumps other people's opinions of us. Thank God for that. His opinion matters most. The truest truth about me is what God says about me, not necessarily what people have said about me. And as the gospel drops deeper and deeper into our hearts, we're going to see it completely transform our self-image. And we call that gospel-shaped identity. Then last weekend, we explored how the gospel also shapes how we relate to each other here in the body of Christ. We're the people of God. We're called together by Jesus, not into a casual relationship, but into a committed covenant relationship with one another, a family, a church family. A covenant community that was meant to embody and display gospel fruit. And I called that gospel-shaped community or just gospel community. It's a beautiful thing to be a part of. And so now today we're finishing out this series by talking about how this beloved gospel message also shapes and defines our mission in the world. So identity is about how we see ourselves. Community is about how we relate to each other. And mission is about what Jesus has called us to be and do in the world that we live in. And so again I ask, how would your life be different if you woke up every morning and saw yourself as a missionary to your culture, to your city? And beyond that, on a broader level, what would our church be like? What would new life be like if we really grasp the truth that we come together on weekends and we gather together in small groups during the week to remind each other of who Jesus is and who we are, and then energized by that, we scatter out into our city during the week to help other people know who Jesus is and who they can become by His grace. I don't know if you ever think about those things. I do. When it comes to how this gospel shapes our mission in the world, I think those scriptures that we just read aloud a few moments ago lead us to three important concepts that we need to address this morning. I'm going to try to shed some light on The first is commission and then engagement, and then assignment. So, stay with me this morning. Commission, let's start there. We have been sent. Would you say that with me? We have been sent. I have been sent. You have been sent. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. That is our commission. We have been sent. And notice that Jesus tied our commission to his commission. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. That means that to fully understand our mission, we must first understand Jesus' mission in the world, what he was sent here to do. And when we think about that, we've got to get a little bit more precise because when Jesus was here walking this planet, he did a lot of things, didn't he? He healed uh, diseases. He cast demons out of people. He fed a lot of people. 
We know he did a lot of teaching while he was here. He trained 12 disciples. He made religious people mad. He got himself executed. He raised from the grave. Jesus did a lot of things. And so the question I have is, is there anywhere in the, in the scriptures where Jesus stated explicitly what he was sent here to do? And when I read the Gospels, I find that Luke and especially John help us a lot with that. And the curtain is pulled back a bit when we read some of Jesus' purpose statements. So just listen as I read some of the things that the Lord said when he was here. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. My teaching is not mine, but it's his who sent me. He who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. The word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And then remember when he was in the garden agonizing over what was to come in his life. He was praying to, the, to his father and he said this, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Jesus was a man on a mission. And his mission involved him speaking the father's words, doing the father's will, and accomplishing the father's work. We see that over and over and over again. That's what he believed he was commissioned to do, and it came through loud and clear in what he said. Now let's get this. Jesus said that our being commissioned by him is similar in some ways to his being commissioned by the Father. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. So what are the similarities? What are the ways that our missions are similar? How is our commission similar to Christ's commission? Well, I, I see at least... Three ways I want to mention. We have a, a similar authorization. Think about that. Just as Jesus' mission was authorized by the Father who sent him, so we are authorized by Jesus who sent us. That means we have credentials. We've been authorized and deputized to do what he told us to do and to say what he told us to say. As Jesus was not speaking or acting on his own, neither are we. So say, I have been authorized. I have been authorized. Not only that, you come as a representative just like Jesus did. We have similar representation. Say, what do you mean? Well, Jesus was an ambassador, was he not? Jesus came from one country to another country country to represent the interests of that country to this country. He came from his home country, which was heaven, to represent the interests and the values of heaven in his host country here on the earth. Man, I want to do a whole sermon on that someday. That is so good. Jesus came as an ambassador, a representative and we who are in Christ are also ambassadors. We represent the values and interests of our king 
to the people of Columbus, Ohio. That's a high calling. Authorization, representation. A third thing of similarity between our missions is support. You know, Jesus was not alone in his mission. He had the backing and the support of his father, and so do we as his ambassadors. Did not Jesus say, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. He's saying, you'll have everything you need to carry out your mission. So again, I ask, how would your life be different if you got up every morning and reminded yourself that you have been commissioned by your king for a special assignment as his ambassador to represent him? You're fully authorized to go out and spread his message and his values to the people in your city. How would your life be different? How would your interactions with people be different? How would your Facebook posts be different? How would your Twitter posts be different? I'm so encouraged. There's a number of people in our church who this year have started blogs for the specific purpose of spreading good news. Such a cool thing. We are missionary ambassadors for the king because we've been sent by him into the world. By his commission, we're authorized to represent him among the people in our city. Does that make sense? I mean, if I'm making any sense, would you just nod your head at me or something? So, okay. Okay, commission. We are sent ones, commissioned by Jesus. We have been sent, but also we've been sent into the world. And that's where the second concept of engagement comes in. We've been sent into the world. Yeah. Jesus in his prayer said, my people, my disciples, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. But as you sent me into the world, so I am sending them into the world. This means that our commission requires us to engage with people. <laughs> the people of our culture, the people of our world, the people at the office, at, at school, the people in our neighborhoods. Engage with the people of our culture. Now, Jesus did that, didn't he? Jesus was sent into a specific culture, was he not? The first century Middle Eastern culture, and he engaged with that culture. He wore the dress of that culture, he ate the food of that culture, he spoke the language of that culture, he observed the feasts and the holidays of that culture, he attended the celebrations of that culture. You ever wondered about what, it, what Jesus would have done if he had been sent into 21st century Western culture? Do you think if he had been sent into our culture that he'd be walking around in long, flowing robes? When I think about this, I kind of think Jesus would be wearing jeans, he'd have an iPad, he'd use Facebook, he'd eat at Chipotle's, he'd go to some movies... <laughs> He would observe some of our cultural customs, all the while being on mission from his Father and not compromising any of his holiness. I need you to stay with me. Missiologists call this, this matter of engaging with the culture, they call it contextualization. You say, well, do I need to understand that? Yes, you do. This is what Paul was describing as his own missionary mindset when he wrote 1 Corinthians 9, 22 and 23, where he said, I have become all things to all people so that by all means I may save some and I do it all for the sake of the gospel. 
That's contextualizing. Now, i got to say, this matter of properly contextualizing is quite tricky. It really is. I personally wrestle with it big time. I do. How do we, as Jesus' people, contextualize in our culture without compromising the values of our king? That's tricky, isn't it? That's tough. Or as Jesus put it in his famous prayer in John 17, how do we as believers remain in the world without being of the world? That's very, very tough to do. And so this morning I thought I'd try to give us some categories for our minds just to try to think of the various ways, the various postures or stances that we can take when it comes to our culture and the people of our culture. And they're on the back side of your study notes there. So think for a minute. One, one posture that some Christians try to take is isolation. Isolation. I don't like the culture. I don't want to be in the culture. I'm opting out. <laughs> this is the attempt to be not of the world by basically running away from it. Isolation happens when Christian people get so concerned about staying pure and remaining unpolluted and uncontaminated from the world that they decide to just opt out. I remember a few years ago watching a movie called The Village. Anybody, anybody remember seeing that movie? Kind of a strange movie. But it was about this group of people that basically wanted to do that. Opt out of the culture, remain free and uncontaminated by the influences of the culture. So they created this kind of alternate community, like walled off from the rest of the culture in hopes of remaining pure and unpolluted. Did it work? It didn't work in the movie, and it doesn't work in life. It really doesn't, because you know what? Wherever you go, you take you with you. <laughs> and all the badness and evil that you might think is out there, there's some of that also in here. Yeah. Wherever you go, you take you with you. Now, you can be beside yourself, but that's another matter altogether. <laughs> and I've got to be honest. <laughs> As a parent, when the prevailing culture does get so decadent and, and you know, sin is being celebrated as a virtue, I've had thoughts about, man, I'd love to pack up my family with a couple other like-minded families and move to Nebraska and start our own little thing there, you know, just to get away from all of that. But it's a fantasy, isn't it? It's a fantasy. It doesn't work. Not only that, what about the mission? What about being sent into the world to be salty salt and bright light and declare the gospel? You can't influence people you have no contact with. And so that's isolation. That's one stance on, on the far end of the scale. Moving in towards the culture a little bit more would be insulation, a little bit different. A step closer to the culture, but still unengaged. This is being kind of in the world, but not of the world. The insulated Christian didn't move to a remote place to get away from all the badness, so they still technically live in the world. But they've decided to basically cocoon themselves in an attempt to keep from being polluted. Yeah, we're going to live here, but we're going to try to completely insulate ourselves from any cultural influence, and so we're going to immerse ourselves in a purely Christian subculture. That's insulation. An example of this would be the parents, the Christian parents who 
forbid their children from having any unsaved friends in an attempt to insulate them from worldly influence. The next posture, moving in closer, would be separation. This is really the kissing cousin to insulation. This is like, I'm in the world, but I hate it. I'm against it. I'm on the attack. So insulation is more passive. This, separation, is more active. Okay, we have to live in the world, but we hate it. We think everything and everyone out there is bad and evil, and so we're going to speak out against it every chance we get. This can even get militant, can it? You ever met a militant separationist? You know, we don't have internet. They kind of talk like that, you know. (laughs) We don't have TV. We don't have cable. And it's kind of like if you do, you know, you're kind of shrinking. (laughs) I'm aware of a congregation that tells its parents this. Now, you can send your children to public school if you must. But if you do that, at recess, your children need to be playing separately from the other children in the classroom In the lunchroom, your child needs to sit at a different table from everybody else because we don't want you or your kids to be influenced by the nasty neighborhood kids. That's just kind of separation, okay? Trying to stay pure and and, and kind of antagonistic, really. Now, separationists aren't sure what to do, really, with technology and Facebook and stuff. It's difficult. And I've got to admit, again, there have been times when I've had some of those inclinations myself. I do believe that kind of radical separationism separationism often leads to pride, like we're the pure ones, kind of a judgmental, you know, we feel superior to everybody else. Also, it's very tricky to be consistent. You're faced with a lot of dilemmas if you're in that camp of being that separationist it's hard you know where do you where do you buy your grocery i mean it's just hard to be consistent and then again i would say what about the mission what about the mission of being sent into the world to represent jesus we are to remain unspotted from the world yes yes but not at the expense of fulfilling the king's commission so it makes it so tough a fourth stance or posture would be accommodation. So this is coming, coming all the way in. This is being in the world and of the world. Christians, okay? With all that pervasive, round-the-clock, everywhere-you-go influence from the world, some people or families just finally give in. It's just too strong. Everybody else is doing stuff. Why are we still trying to swim upstream? You know, our friends gave up the fight a long time ago. Plus, it really does look like all those people in the beer commercials are having a great time. And so, we're just going to dive in. We're tired of fighting. Go ahead. And so these folks end up being in the world and of the world. No difference. Compromised. Indistinct. Not bright light and salty salt, but dim light and bland seasoning that has little effect and doesn't create any thirst in its neighbors, accommodating the values of the world. I believe Jesus' posture was the fifth stance, and that is one of mission, being a missionary. I would describe this as being in the world, 
for the world, not against it, but for the world, but not of the world. Think about that. The missionary-minded Christian recognizes that all of culture is not evil, so he or she refrains from making you know, broad, sweeping, generalized statements about the culture. Bless you. Man, <laughs> they know that mankind is created in God's image, and so even though that image is somewhat marred and defaced by sin, there's still some redeeming aspects of human culture, faint though they may be. There is such a thing as beautiful art. There is such a thing as stunning architecture, lovely music. There are even movies that do reflect something of the image of God, right? But those same believers who are mission-minded also have a realistic view of culture, and they know that there are false gods everywhere in the culture, everywhere. Um, you've heard me say it before. I've borrowed this. When a good thing becomes a God thing, that's a bad thing. When a good thing, like food, for example, is food a good thing? Oh, yeah, food's a very good thing. God said it's been created to be received with thanksgiving. Give thanks for it. But when a good thing like food becomes a God thing, something that you're obsessed about, it becomes the center of your life, that's a bad thing because that's an idol. That's a usurper. That's taking the place in your heart that only Jesus deserves. Or sports, good thing, yes, but if it becomes a God thing. Or sexual pleasure, a good thing that can become a God thing. Or your work. Or politics. When a good thing becomes a God thing, that's a bad thing. That's an idol. That's an idol. And so the missionary-minded Christian thinks like the Apostle Paul did, who when he went into the city of Athens, he sought to identify the idols in the culture, the things that people worshipped instead of worshipping Jesus. We've called them the substitute functional saviors of that culture. They're not unengaged with the culture, but they're engaged with a purpose. Yes, they're wary of cultural influence, but they're looking for ways to show their neighbors that Jesus is Lord of their city and the only one worthy to be their supreme treasure. Does that make sense? Think about this for a minute. What would you say are the prominent idols in our city? Columbus, Ohio. What do people worship in place of Jesus? I, did I say anything? <laughs> Last service, people were shouting out kinds of things, you know? Every city has its idols. How do you identify what has become an idol? Well, how about these questions? What do people look to primarily for meaning and satisfaction and to validate themselves? What brings your friends their greatest joy? What makes them feel most threatened? What is it when, it, when it's... When it's threatened to be taken away from them that they get most upset about and most angry about? What causes the deepest depression in people? The answers to those questions, if it's, you know, something other than related to Jesus Christ, tells us that there's the existence of a functional substitute savior, an idol, something usurping, taking Jesus' rightful place as king. You know, Jesus is Lord of this city. He's Lord of all, right? So Jesus deserves to be worshipped in Columbus, Ohio. And so the believer who's taken this stance as a missionary, who sees themselves in a missionary, is looking to identify what are the idols 
What are the substitute functional saviors that are worshipped instead of Jesus in this city in order to expose them and then show by their life and by their words how Jesus is the only worthy one of worship? That's what missionaries do. Jesus has authorized and sent us to be in the world, for the world, but not of the world. So just look down through those five postures Christians can have towards the culture. Which of them would you say most describes you? Hmm. Insulated? Isolated? You know, separated? Or have you just decided it's just too hard and the culture's too strong and you've basically just accommodated the culture, the world in your heart? Or do you see yourself primarily as a missionary? A missionary to this city. I will say this. It's my conviction that these days, with the way the culture is, you're either a missionary or a mission field. I don't think there's any middle ground anymore. I think there probably used to be in the era of Christendom, but Christendom is gone. I think you're either a missionary or a mission field needing someone to come to you with the message of Jesus. What do you wake up in the morning seeing yourself as? We have been sent... That's commission into the world. That's engagement. Why? For what purpose? Third concept is assignment. Think again about what our Savior said to his 11 men in his final conversations with them. Just listen to to what he said. Go and make disciples of all nations. You will be my witnesses. Preach the gospel to all of creation. What's our assignment? What have we been commissioned to do in the world? What's the primary mission of the church of Jesus Christ? As best I understand it in his words, it's this. Be in the world. Represent Jesus well to the world. Proclaim his gospel message. And seek to win more devoted followers to Jesus. That's really it, isn't it? That's the mission of, our, of the church. Well, I want to say a few, hopefully, clarifying things about this. Think about churches for a minute, churches you've been in. There are a lot of good things that churches can be doing in the world. Wouldn't you agree? A lot of good things. Mercy ministries, relieving suffering, helping the poor, educating the underprivileged, feeding the hungry, caring for orphans, advocating for the oppressed, freeing slaves, building clean water wells in place where it's desperately needed. These are all good works, aren't they, that we can and should be doing. I I don't want you to misunderstand me. New Life is involved in doing all of those good works. But think about this. If we do all of those things and even do them well, but don't do them in such a way as to make Jesus look like the Savior he is, the King he is, the treasure that he is, then is it that much different than a social agency, or a relief organization doing those works. Isn't our mission distinct? And isn't it Jesus Christ and his message that makes it distinct? My current understanding of this is that our acts of compassion most represent Jesus when they flow from a transformed heart that loves its neighbor. You say, why are we doing this stuff all over the world and in our town? Why are we working to relieve suffering and advocate for the oppressed and all those things? Why? Because we love our neighbors. Because our hearts have been transformed by the gospel. 
Didn't Jesus tell us, love your neighbor as yourself? That's why we do it. I think these acts of compassion most represent Jesus in our world when they come out of and arise out of a new identity shaped by the gospel. And I believe they represent him best when they are combined with gospel words. Gospel deeds and gospel words. You know, some people want to pit those against each other, like our words and our works, like either or, like you have to choose. Does it really have to, do you have to choose? Or can you do gospel works and speak gospel words? I think it's both. Our lips speaking his message and our lifestyles demonstrating it. The gospel proclaimed and the gospel demonstrated. Both and not either or. But I will say this. No one can come to faith in Jesus Christ just by our works. They need to hear the words. They need to hear the message. It's the gospel that saves. So that's the first thing I wanted to say. A second thing, I believe it's also important to understand the difference or the distinction between our shared mission as a church and our individual callings in the world. There's a distinction there that I think we need to understand. As the church, we've been commissioned primarily to make disciples of all nations by proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel to them. That's the mission of the church at large. But on an individual level... Each of you have been ordained by God to do a certain work. Didn't Paul say that in Ephesians 2.10? Ordained beforehand that you should walk in them. Before you were ever in your mother's womb, God had ordained for you a work to do, and he has designed you and gifted you uniquely to do that work, that particular calling. And when you... Do it in the power of the Spirit. That's your gift back to your Redeemer. And it's your contribution to the big mission in the world. No one can do your work quite like you can do it. Really, that's true. It's a particular burden or passion that God has given you as an individual, and He's going to empower you to do it. Let me give you some examples of people I know in this church who've shared what they believe their individual calling is. There's a man who believes he is called to help other Christian men break free from the shackles of pornography. He's like, that's why I'm here. That's what what I'm called to do. That's why I'm on the planet. Help men extract themselves from the darkness of that lifestyle. There's a woman who's told me, I'm called to inspire women to lifestyles of health and wholeness in Christ. That's what I do. That's why I get up in the morning every day. Those are the opportunities I'm looking for to inspire women to live healthy, whole, teleos, Christian lives in Christ. There's a young guy I know who believes he's called to create music that inspires other people and especially inspires them to worship Jesus. And so that's what he does. He writes music and he uses technology to create it, sends it out to people. One lady I talked with this week told me she feels called to help orphans feel cared for by Jesus. Like she said, that's, that's what I lay awake at night thinking about. How can I do that? How can I do that more effectively? God, where are you sending me to help orphans feel cared for by Jesus? That's her particular calling. A couple I know feel strongly that they're called to promote adoption, especially adoption of international children as a 
demonstration of the gospel. And they think about that all the time. Another couple feels called to help Christians view their finances from God's perspective and view money from God's perspective. You get the idea? It's that personal, individual calling. And when you discover that and start to go down that path, it, it produces a passion in you, doesn't it? It's like, yeah, this is what I'm all about. <laughs> now I've found my groove. This is why I'm here on the planet, to do this. And it's, it, it, it impacts the kingdom of God. It impacts our mission. But it's your unique calling. One caution is that I, I've noticed this, is that we can have the tendency to want the whole church to embrace our personal individual calling and get behind it because we're so passionate about it, right? We think everybody should be as passionate as I, as I am. <laughs> and that's very understandable. It's not likely to happen, but it's very understandable. You know, what we need to do is, is to look up higher to the overarching mission of the whole church and see how our individual calling ties into and contributes to that, helping people treasure Jesus Christ. We need to find that tie, that connection. Third thing I'd like to say about this, any missionary will tell you this, effectively living your life on mission to others begins with first treasuring Jesus in your own heart. It begins with you, doesn't it? It's as much caught as taught. Someone asked me a while back, well, so, Pastor Steve, what is New Life's evangelism strategy these days? And I thought about that and I said, well, you know what? Here's what I believe. I believe everybody is already an evangelist. You are. You're an evangelist for something. Did you know that? You're a walking billboard advertising that thing in your life that is most important to you, that is most precious to you. You are an evangelist, a raving evangelist for your treasure. You are. You talk about it. When you start talking about it, you light up. You get all animated. People know what you're about. What is our evangelism strategy? Here it is in my mind. I'm, I'm trying to do my part to fill all of us up with Jesus and his gospel so that that becomes what's most precious to us so that we're raving evangelists for Jesus. And we can't not talk about our treasure now. And instead of having to get up here and guilt people into, you know, you need to be sharing your faith, you need to be witnessing, rather than that, we'll have to hold you back from coming on too strong with people because you're so burdened and passionate about Jesus Christ. In my mind, that's our evangelism strategy, to get all filled up with Christ so that he just kind of leaks out on everybody. <laughs> you get squeezed, that's what comes out full of affection for Jesus Christ. You see, making disciples is basically helping other people treasure Jesus above all else, and you do that first by treasuring Jesus yourself. You've got to be a disciple before you can make disciples, right? All right. Last thing I want to say about this, and just, just note this, realize that you're primarily a missionary for Jesus, not politics not morality, not religion, and not even church. Those things never saved anybody. Did you know that politics has never saved anybody from sin and hell? It has its place. Religion, I mean religion, the religion of just doing, trying to do good things, that's never saved anybody from 
sin or hell. Jesus is the only Savior. Some Christians I know, they, they, get, they get in conversations, you know, about whatever, abortion, homosexuality, the latest hot-button issue in our culture, and they think they're evangelizing. That's not evangelizing. That's trying to convince people to believe what you believe about those issues. Evangelism is about Jesus. It's sharing Jesus with people. It really is. I mean, the gospel is a person. Jesus of Nazareth, that man, that incredible, unbelievable man, who is everything we could have ever hoped or dreamed, right? That's our message. So let's get clear on that. Now, don't misunderstand me. I believe in working to get God's law respected everywhere. It's a good thing. Some people feel that is their particular calling in life. That's fine. But evangelism is about Jesus. He's the only one who can save people. All right. I need to pull all this together. Not just today's message, but all of these last four weeks together. So I'm going to pull that diagram up again. And just remind all of us, God has called us here at New Life to be a church that's centered in and driven by the gospel of Christ. When that message is believed, it transforms our identity, right? At the very core of our being. Trusting God's word that Jesus Christ lived the life you couldn't live, died the death that you and I deserved, and then rose from the grave so that he was able to make you a part of his family, that message, when you believe it at the core of your being, will change your self-image, the way you view yourself. That's gospel-shaped identity. The gospel also shapes our life together as a community. It calls us into covenant relationship, not only with our Lord, but with each other, into a covenant community. It forms us into a family, a spiritual family. It defines how we relate to each other as family members. And then finally, this glorious message of the gospel sets us on mission together, and it defines that mission for us as helping other people treasure Jesus Christ above everything else in their lives, that he's more precious. And that's the journey that this church finds itself on. It is a gospel adventure, and I believe it's being directed and orchestrated and led by King Jesus that that's his, his work in this body. His, his divine thumbprint on this church is what we've been talking about these last four weeks. And so I need to ask you a question as we close out this series. You know how pastors need to kind of like bring it all to a point of commitment, right? Um, here's the question. Are you all in? Yes. I mean, are you all in with this? Or are you partially in? somewhat in or are you kind of dipping your toe in the water and seeing if you like it are, are you in can you could I ask you to just kind of locate yourself where where am I where are you at and we're at different places we understand that and we don't do this every week or even a, a lot but I did put a response card in your worship folder today would you take that out it says today's response it's blue baby blue <laughs> and it's got two sections and I see our ushers have some extra ones if yours fell out of your worship folder on the way in and is laying on the ground somewhere <laughs> it has two sections at the top it says I'm already a ministry partner at New Life that's our term for membership and down at the bottom it says I'm ready to pursue ministry partnership and 
Let me just ask those of you who are members. Maybe you became a member last month or in 2007 or 1999 or 1987. And I'm wondering, as we've walked through this series together of who we are and what we're all about, if if the Lord's been prompting you to renew a, a commitment that you made to this church family. Maybe it's kind of, you know, sagged a little bit over the years. I used to do that. I used to be involved in that. I used to serve in a ministry. I used to be connected to a small group. And God's been prompting you, you know, you need to renew your commitment in that area. You say, what are the commitments? Well, they're listed on the back. At the, at the bottom, the family commitments. We talked about them last week. Worship regularly with your church family. I mean, making that a priority. Connecting weekly with a small group family. We're promoting that a lot this time of year. Serving gratefully in a ministry that supports and blesses your church family. There's a lot of ministry opportunities right now. Giving cheerfully towards your church family's needs and mission. Just opening up your heart again and giving freely or what we've been talking about today, reaching out lovingly to those outside God's family and pointing them to Jesus. If God's talking to you about renewing your commitment in any of those areas, would you just let us know that? Put a check in that box and write out which of those commitments it is. Or maybe you're not a ministry partner yet at New Life. You're hanging around here. You you have been for a while. But what the Lord's been saying to you is it's time. You've dated long enough. It's time to commit. And if you're 16 or older, according to our church constitution, you can become a full-fledged, card-carrying ministry partner of New Life Church. And if God's calling you to do that, would you let us know that? Just check that box. There is a next step, very simple. It's an abbreviated class, a special edition of Discover New Life on Sunday night, September 16th. I was talking with a family at the uh, car show the other night, and they said, that's where we're at. We've been coming to New Life for a long time. Our heart is there. It's our home church. We would say that. We've just never made it official. <laughs> and, and the husband looked at me and said, but we're going to do that. This, God is leading us this direction. We're going to get planted here and be all in. And I said, cool. You should probably preach the sermon on Sunday. <laughs> But maybe that's you. Um, if the Lord's leading you here, we would love to have you all in with the rest of us. You can let us know. Or maybe at the bottom it says, I'm not yet ready to take this step, but I know it's important. I will pray and seek God for his direction. Maybe that's where you're at. Okay, that's just being honest. You can put your name on that and your email or your phone, and then when the offering bags come around in a few minutes, you can drop this in or fold it and drop it in there because there's some of these things where we need to give you some information. So so there it is. There's my call to commitment. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we think now about all that you've done for us, I am so glad that when you were in the garden agonizing over what was coming, looking at that cup, the cup of God's wrath, that I deserved to drink. I am so glad you didn't hesitate, that you followed through. You were all in. And you drank it for me and for us. Thank you. And we come to your table now. We, we desire to feel your presence in a special way. Meet with us as we commemorate the, great, the greatest sacrifice of all. Thank you, Lord.